Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. What next for the mass protests in Russia? Facing down brutal police repression, tens of thousands seized the streets in Russia to oppose the arrest of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Vladimir Putin's dictatorial regime was shaken. While working class Russians suffer ever more misery, Putin has built himself an opulent private palace. The anger against him is enormous. But although Navalny has exposed the kleptocracy's massive corruption, his vision is limited to a more democratic capitalism. Workers should have greater democratic rights, but would this alone solve their problems? Is it even achievable with capitalism in crisis? And what sort of programme and organisation does Russia's working class need to end both dictatorship and poverty? This episode of Socialism, taken from a broadcast by the Committee for a Workers' International on the 11th of February 2021, looks at the Russia protests. What future for Putin's regime? Now, of course, this week, as usual, the last couple of weeks, we've seen a whole series of fundamental developments internationally. There's been the drama unfolding in the United States, which continues up until the present time, with the impeachment procedures and the trial of Trump in the Senate taking place. You've seen the incredible protests taking place in Myanmar. Maybe we can return to discuss at a later stage. We've seen unbelievable upheavals in Latin America, horrors in Africa, and of course, in the last few weeks, we've seen this wave of protests which has shaken Russia in protests against the Putin regime, triggered by Navalny's arrest. And it's that issue of developments in Russia, the protests against Putin, that we're going to be discussing and looking at today. And we're very privileged to have with us to discuss these events, two active participants and regular visitors to Russia over the years to intervene in the workers' movement there. We have Claire Doyle, a member of the International Secretariat of the Committee for a Workers International, who lived in Russia between 1990-95, of course, witnessed, therefore, all of the historic events of the collapse of the former Soviet Union, of the attacks on the White House that took place there, and a whole series of other developments there, and has been a regular visitor to Russia and the region. And also, we're pleased to welcome Niall Mulholland, member of the International Secretary of the CWI, who's also visited Russia on many occasions, along with other countries in that particular area. So maybe we could begin by looking at the events themselves that has taken place. And maybe, Claire, we could ask you to comment on some of those events that have unfolded. What has taken place in the protests? How big are they? How significant are they? What's the social composition been of them? Have the workers been involved in them? And how do they compare to the events that took place in 2012, where, of course, there were also protests against the Putin regime? So maybe Claire could begin the discussion by outlining some of the events that have taken place in the recent weeks. Yes, well, I think the developments of the last couple of weeks have been dramatic and unprecedented, actually, in Putin's Russia. We saw demonstrations on the 23rd of January on the question of freeing Navalny, but taking up other issues as well, which I'll come on to. But these demonstrations took place right across the 11 time zones of this massive country of Russia, from Vladivostok in the east, 
you know, right over to St. Petersburg that used to be called Leningrad in the West. And we saw people demonstrating in temperatures of minus 50 degrees in places like Yakutsk. And again, the following Sunday, people were out in their tens of thousands. Some people estimate more than 100 cities were involved. In Moscow, there were 40,000 demonstrating. And that was in spite of massive police presence. And we've seen very heavily tooled up riot police blocking roads, chasing demonstrators, bashing them on the heads, picking them up and throwing them into police vans and taking them to prison or even sort of makeshift camps because they haven't had enough room for the 10,000 people that they're holding at the moment. And even last week, I think it was on the evening of Navalny's trial, the first trial, when he appeared in court, there were so many arrested that they were either held in the police vans overnight or they were squashed into cells, 28 to a cell. But you asked about how does this differ? I mean, it is dramatic. It's not just on the issue of Navalny. I think it's opened up the floodgates. It's brought people out onto the streets to express their total dissatisfaction with the Putin regime, but with life under Putin. I think now we'll probably go a bit more into the question of the economy and the difficulties that people face. But there was one woman I saw being interviewed, I mean, on television, unfortunately, I'm not there. I'd love to be there who said, look, there are people in this country searching through the bins, the rubbish bins for food. And yet this Putin, he has a palace. Now, whether it's his own palace or not his palace, he's living in a palace and they know how the rich are living and how many people are suffering through, you know, the policies, the, the poverty that affects them. And the young people have come onto the streets. It's predominantly youth, but not only youth, predominantly youth, Maybe the working class has not got involved as yet. Workers would come onto the question of the trade unions later. But when they had the demonstrations around 2011, 2012, that Navalny was involved in, it was predominantly restricted to Moscow, I think. If I remember rightly, Balotnaya is a part of Moscow where they were demonstrating against rigged elections, which, of course, have continued since then. But this is something new. I mean, I have a friend, a few friends in what's now St. Petersburg, but one who said to me, this could be a whole new stage of history that we see opening up in Russia. There was no mass demonstration last Sunday. There's a call for demonstrations this Sunday with candles and flowers outside your house. But I think there are going to be more demonstrations. It's not the end. There can be pauses. There can be renewals of this movement, but it's dramatic. So a dramatic new era opened up in Russia, as Claire has outlined. Now, of course, no events like this just simply drop from the sky. They reflect what process has been taking place economically, politically, and indeed socially. Now, in 2014, of course, Putin was successful in incorporating the Crimea back into Russia, which is now seems to have transformed into a substantial military base now for their position. And that for a temporary period, seemed to strengthen Putin's position. But obviously the situation has changed. And what is the economic background against which these events are taking place? How has the situation worsened? And what effect the economic and indeed the COVID crisis had on the workers and youth in Russia? Niall, maybe you'd have some observations on that. Yes, Putin definitely picked up in support after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, as you said, Tony. And he used that to whip up nationalism and xenophobia within Russia itself to broaden his base of support. 
And even in recent years, there has been a relative pickup in the economy at various periods in Russia, although the overall situation is one of decline and an over-reliance on fossil fuels, which will be cut into and undermined over time with the Green Revolution and so on, but also a failure to diversify the economy enough to really develop it. Putin also, of course, has been quite successful or very successful in engineering and stage managing elections for a number of years, using all sorts of gerrymandering methods, including excluding opposition figures, putting forward false opposition figures to stand in elections against him, supposedly, and has allowed him to win the vote and also, of course, to extend his period in which he can run as president. But I think this year, January 2021, as Claire's already outlined, is of tremendous importance because it shows all the discontent, the anger at the economic situation, the slowdown in the economic situation, the falling of living standards and endemic corruption all coming to the fore, all coming to the surface over this issue. The growing weariness with sections of the population over the foreign policy, Crimea and the intervention in the Syrian conflict, the intervention around the conflicts in eastern Ukraine, around the Donbass and so on, this is seen as a morass. This is costing an enormous amount of finances and money for Russia. And this is allied to the fact that unemployment has gone up. It now stands at 6.4%, which is 5 million people, the highest it's been in a decade. Young people in particular are hit by this. They face bleaker prospects, including those coming out of college, precarious jobs, the gig economy, and so on. And the number of people living below the poverty line has gone up by 1.8 million, that's to a total of 20 million people, which is around 14% of the overall population. And like elsewhere in the world, 2020 saw COVID and lockdown and mishandling of the crisis by the Putin regime. And it saw a real big impact on people's living conditions. So from January to September last year, disposable income for Russians fell by 4.3%. And in the second quarter of the year, it fell by 8.4%. It's not quite the levels of the disastrous period of 1990s, capitalist reintroduction in Russia, but it's still an echo of those terrible days. And at the same time, again, like elsewhere in the world, there's been a massive growth of inequality. The largest oligarchs' wealth grew by $1.5 billion over the last year. And that means now that the Russian Federation is in the unviable position of being the leading country for inequality ratings. And all this, of course, has led to growing anger amongst the middle class and the working class who feel that they're paying for this crisis of capitalism. And it shows at the same time the inability of the ruling classes to resolve the pandemic situation. So I think, as Claire has indicated, we've entered a very explosive situation. The protesters have been told to pause the protests by the opposition figures for the present time. We'll have to see how things unfold. But definitely going into the elections, for the Duma elections in September, in the spring and the summer, we can see a big number of protests taking place again. And the key issue for socialists, both in Russia and internationally, is to support all attempts by the working class to build its own independent voice in this process and its own independent working class organisations. Now, you commented there, Niall, about the reintroduction of capitalism into Russia, into the former Soviet Union at the beginning of the 1990s, 91, 92, which of course had devastating international consequences. Now, Claire, you were there as these processes unfold with capitalist restoration and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which took place then. Now, 
How did it unfold? What was the characteristics of the emerging Russian capitalism, which now Putin stands at the head of? I mean, it seems to have a particularly oligarchical characteristics, a particularly corrupt system compared with some other countries, although everywhere else seems to be doing its level best to catch up with the Russian oligarchs in terms of corruption at this stage. But maybe, Claire, you could outline a little bit how the process of capitalist restoration was carried through. What is the nature of the Russian oligarchical system which exists? Yes, well, it was a bitter experience, partly because we could sort of see what was coming in 1991, after the attempted coup, if they carried through what they called the transition to market, that it would mean poverty. It would mean not sort of democracy, as people imagine, like Sweden or the US, if you call that democracy. They saw it as a possibility of a better life. We warned that if they took the capitalist road, it would be more like Latin America. There would be mass unemployment. There would be hyperinflation. There would be a collapse in the economy and there would be dictatorship. And people just didn't want to know. They thought anything is better than what we're going through at the moment with the shortages and the queues, you know, and total dissatisfaction everywhere. Even with the perestroika idea of opening up, you know, Gorbachev's, they weren't confident that that was going to mean anything for them. At that time, by the way, Putin worked for the KGB in what was Leningrad then that became St. Petersburg. He was working for Sobchak, who was the mayor, who was actually addressing mass meetings in 1991 you know, in the Winter Palace Square, where the 1905 revolution began, by the way, almost exactly to the date of these demonstrations, 22nd of January 1905. But Sobchak was addressing the huge mass of people, saying, we're going towards democracy, we're getting rid of the old regime, the generals, you know, and sort of promising peace and plenty for all. And within days, in the following months and a couple of years, there was a horrific process. It was a scrambling of all those who were at the top of the so-called Communist Party, who were the bureaucrats who'd been getting rich, you know, over the years and over the decades and very privileged. As Trotsky had explained and predicted, they were very rich, but they had still been leeching off the back of state-owned planned economy. But they now, grabbed in a way that Trotsky also predicted that they actually grabbed the property that belonged to the state and belonged to the workers in a very clever money trick. I haven't really got time to go into it now, but they gave out vouchers to workers saying, look, now you own a bit of your own industry, which actually they did technically before. And then the workers were poverty stricken. Those vouchers were bought off them by grannies standing at the metro stations who were actually working, but people at the top of the party apparatus who then used them to accumulate their own wealth and to become a very wealthy oligarchs. I mean, today there are a hundred oligarchs, hundred billionaires in Russia. Thirteen of them have more than 10 billion, including Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea, I think. I don't follow football, but I do follow a bit the privileges of the billionaires and oligarchs in London. And Putin is sometimes estimated to have as much as 200 billion. But I mean, in the years that I was there, to get into this position, there were shootouts. I mean, it was like really gangster capitalism. They were killing each other in the streets for the property that they took over. And then they did have a horrific collapse in the economy. 50% of the Russian economy collapsed, even in the couple of years while I was there. There was mass unemployment, poverty. And by 1993, when I think Tony himself was there, Yeltsin, the great Democrat, 
who were sending tanks against the parliament, the White House, in Moscow, actually killing people. I mean, there's a lot of history that is worth looking at because it's never told properly and we need to do that. Absolutely. Of course, you know, those events, 93, were explosive. It's where we got mugged, I think, Claire. But we're not going to that <laughs> now. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think it is crucial developments. The whole character of Russian capitalism from the very beginning, they looted the state, fundamentally, is how this capitalist class came into being. And you mentioned there the obscene wealth, but, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. There seems to be a theme of Russian oligarchs. They like yachts. Abramovich has a yacht eclipse has nine stories on it worth 340 million. There's another guy, Scheffler, who has a yacht called Serene, worth 468 million. So little toys they have to play about when they're not robbing people left, right and centre. Now, these protests, though, have been triggered by the arrest of Navalny. So what does he represent? That's a crucial question. Is he leading a serious opposition to Putin? What's the programme? Is it a challenge to capitalism coming from Navalny? What's his history? He was, after all, I think, in the US. There's even some speculation he was headhunted at a certain stage by American security agencies as a politician to train up and work with, possible as a rival to the Putin regime. So maybe Niall has some comments about Navalny and his programme and what does he really represent? Well, I think Navalny is definitely seen by broad sections of the population in Russia as a victim of the regime and even a martyr of the regime now that he's been given a prison sentence. But really, if you look at his record, which is a checkered one, for most of the 2000s or the last 10 or 15 years, his support has been relatively marginal, mainly mobilising amongst a section of the middle class and a section of youth, and amongst smaller business people, the self-employed, and so on. And his popularity was actually declining from 2018 but he did pick up at the end of 2020. And of course, we see now he's really leapt ahead in broad support in 2021. And there's a number of events which have helped this process. The alleged poisoning by the regime of Navalny, of course, which led to his near death, meant enormous sympathy from people across Russia and internationally towards him. Then his return to Russia to face near definite imprisonment, again, has made him to be seen as courageous and bold by many people. And then, of course, he faced completely absurd charges by the regime, and he was sentenced on the 2nd of February to three and a half years in prison. These charges, by the way, are in connection with a fraud case connected to a company which date all the way back to 2012 and 2014. And yet the verdict in the earlier case was actually invalidated by the European Court of Human Rights, and the Russian authorities actually agreed with that ruling at that time, and even issued compensation to Navalny. Nevertheless, they still imprisoned him in charges linked to that old case, and that prison sentence met outrage and protests across different parts of Russia. And I think it's not just over him as an individual. These protests are an expression of the anger and the growing frustration at decades of state authoritarianism and repression. And it's not just Navalny, by the way. There's been some quite high-profile cases of people on the left, of anti-fascists, who have been given heavy prison sentences and trumped-up charges in the recent months. Having said that, of course, Navalny, what does his programme mean? What does he stand for? And we would say he's not a socialist. He's not leading a mass worker struggle at this present time. A reactionary corrupt Putin regime doesn't mean, of course, that socialists give a blank check support to everybody in the opposition. Even many of the protesters themselves 
say that they're protest against corruption and poverty and they're not supporters in their own words of Navalny and his program. As Tony indicated, he's had a checkered background. He was a law graduate. He then did work for a liberal opposition right-wing party. And then he began to make his name as an anti-corruption campaigner. But in the past, he was also linked to the extreme right inside Russia. He was a member of the so-called Organizational Council of the Russian March, which organized an annual demonstration by the far right in Russia. He also, as Tony said, participated in what's called the World Fellowship Program at Yale University in 2010, again in 2019. And that is alleged to be a training house for future leaders of colour revolutions and so on that would be backed by the Western imperialist powers. But despite all this, he has struck a chord. He struck a chord over the issue of corruption and as he's depicted the Putin party, a party of crooks and thieves. And then recently, as Claire mentioned, this video expose allegedly of Putin's palace has been viewed a hundred million times on video. So he has tapped in to a lot of support at the present time, but his actual policies are clearly pro-market. They're clearly pro-capitalist. If you look at any detail, he does put forward an agenda of austerity of sorts, whilst calling for cuts in taxes and red tape for corporations and proposes the privatisation of semi-state-owned enterprises. So in a way, he speaks for a layer of the ruling class who feel that their economic ambitions have been blocked by Putin and his allies for a whole period of time. And he also speaks to that part of the ruling elite that would like to have closer alignment with Western imperialism over the next period of time. Now, Navalny knows, obviously, he can't build a broader support of just putting forward those sorts of ideas. He has also, quite skillfully, put forward pro-worker rhetoric, anti-poverty rhetoric and campaigning and so on to broaden his base of support. For example, he's won support from an organisation called Doctors' Alliance, which is set up, I believe, in 2018 and has campaigned, including using industrial action. He aims to build, he says, an alliance of teachers and cultural workers to garner wider support. And of course, in a way, this isn't really trying to approach the wider working class and industrial working class. This is making overtures towards what would be considered the low-paid intelligentsia in Russia at this stage. But due to the absence of mass workers' organisations, of mass independent trade unions given a clear lead to the protests at the present time, Navalny has been able to step in and act as a channel for the discontent that exists. By the way, it's not the first time we've seen this sort of process in history. Father Gapon, after all, led the early stages of the 1905 revolution against hunger, war and czarism at that period. But at the moment, Putin is trying to hold firm. He's put Navalny in prison. He seems to be holding the support of the military apparatus and the regime, and so on. He's also pointing to Navalny's protests and saying this is a real dangerous attempt by the outside, by the Westerners, to invoke another colour revolution. And do we want to go the same way as Ukraine, or even worse, somewhere like Libya? And that will get a certain amount of support, particularly amongst an older section of the population. But generally speaking, Putin's reactionary diet of wars, of Russian nationalism, of Islamophobia, of his anti-LGBTQ legislation and so on, that won't satisfy and mollify the masses, not when living standards are falling and more and more the elite is seen as out of touch. So big struggles are inevitable and the key issue for us as socialists in Russia and internationally is to support the struggle for democratic rights, whilst at the same time warning about the aims of liberal bourgeoisie leaders, if you like, 
like Nelvani and the need for an independent class programme. Well, that's important points you raised there, Niall, really touching upon how events can develop. And of course, you drew the analogy there with what happened historically in Russia with 1905 revolution initially being led by one priest by the name of Father Gapon. Now, of course, you had the Russian revolution. Then you had the whole period of Stalinist degeneration. You had the restoration of capitalism, having gone through that horrific period of the Stalinist bureaucratic rule. But what mark has that left in terms of the perception of socialism amongst the Russian people? Do they associate socialism with Stalinism? How easy it is to pose the issue of socialism within Russia at this stage? Now, that also is linked, of course, with the key question of the organisations of the working class and what is the situation with the working class in Russia vis-à-vis the trade unions. If we have Navalny representing really another wing of the oligarchs or another wing of Russian capitalism, then, I mean, we need obviously to look towards the emergence of a new workers' party. Now, how is that likely or could it develop in relation to Russia at this stage if this movement it does indeed develop further. So maybe Claire would like to elaborate a few points linked to those questions. Yes, well, first on the question of consciousness or how people feel about a different kind of society, socialism, I don't think much has changed since I lived there. Of course, I don't know exactly what younger people are discussing at the moment. Even their history lessons are probably totally distorted about what happened even at the time of the Russian Revolution, let alone 1905, but 1917. They used to say it was just a putsch, you know, and there was never any democratic workers' government in Russia. It just led to dictatorship and all the horrors that they know about that happened under Stalinism. You know, the mass arrests, the deportations, the killings, the purges and the trials. They don't know about Trotsky. Trotsky, he's not been rehabilitated in Russia to this day, actually. So they don't know any of the explanations about what happened. So I doubt if the idea of socialism is any more attractive. So it has to be explained in a different way. And I think building on the anger that exists against the oligarchs and their filthy wealth, if you like. I did read a thing about a poll that says 80% of the public views the authorities as completely and irredeemably corrupt. So they know what's wrong, but they're not clear on what to fight for. And of course, the experience and not only of Stalinism, but of gangster capitalism since then, makes them very pessimistic about the future. I think there are ways that especially young people will be looking for some alternative to this corrupt regime. And even if the working class hasn't been involved in the demonstrations as yet, I think that round the tables where Russians discuss everything, round their kitchen table, either with a cup of tea or a little glass of vodka, they will be discussing with their parents, you know, what does this mean? What has this country been through? Where can we find some alternative to this sort of hell that we're living through at the present time? And it's not just a question of freezing the assets of the oligarchs, either in London or anywhere in the world. It's a question of actually taking those assets off them. They stole them from the working class. It's time that the workers organised to get them back to take over industry and to run it with genuine democratic control of workers and democratic planning, which is what you know, we've always advocated and what Bolsheviks, the Russian Revolution, established in the very early days. So it's difficult to predict. I should just tell you it's useful to have one or two people who are living in the country who can bring you up to date on things. 
A correspondent in St. Petersburg was telling me yesterday, was clarifying about the nature of the trade unions, which Tony asked about. There is the Federation of Independent Unions, which has a big membership. I think it's a bit of a leftover from the old state unions, but they're now not advocating anything like state ownership, obviously. There's 27 million members. And there must be some discussions going on within, but it's pretty pro-government and passive. There's another union. There are one or two yellow unions and pro-Putin and pro-Boss type of unions. But there is one union, Confederation of Russian Labour, which has two million members and has organised strikes and some resistance to the policies of the government. There are also some quite heroic workers Actually, even like in Myanmar, where this revolutionary development is taking place as we speak, there are doctors who are organized and have taken strike action. And actually, I think you might have seen there's a video going the rounds as things do on the social media. Social media are a bit of a nuisance sometimes, but they can help in spreading the ideas and actually showing what's happening. There was one a doctor who was actually playing the piano in her house as the police came to the door. It's being filmed, but as they came to arrest her, there's also the leader of a teacher's alliance who's been arrested. I think there are other arrests have been made even of local representatives who don't happen to be of the Putin party, United Russia. Well, you asked, how is this going to be overcome? Which can't be answered you know, with one simple solution. Although I think that the demands around which new party will be built obviously have to be on the basis of democratic programme, but also on the vital issues of standards of living. I mean, the Russian revolution was carried through on not highfalutin slogans, but Peace, spread and land. I mean, Russia's not at war at the moment, in spite of making a lot of warlike noises. And it's not a question of land or bread, simple things like that. But it is a question of a living wage, you know, enough to live on, a decent pension, a jobs for all, education for all, and a number of other economic issues. And I think that the handful of young people who begin to draw the conclusions and the need to build a party with socialist ideas and a socialist program, they would seek out combative workers, either in their own homes or you know, in the workplaces, and urge them to join the movement and get involved in setting up local committees, sending representatives to regional committees and national committees. And really, this links up with the idea of how you could actually organize for a successful revolution. It's not at that point at the moment, but we have to talk about that. And we have to convince people that it's possible, that an alternative society is possible, a socialist society is possible. And just imagine if they move towards that in Russia, what it would mean, you know, more than a century after the successful Russian revolution, but what it would mean internationally. Yes, indeed. And that's the question of internationalism from the workers' point of view and also the regional power which Putin is attempting to play. But before we come to touch on those points, we'd just like to appeal to all of our viewers. If you want to follow deeper and further analysis by the Committee for a Workers International, visit our website at socialistworld.net. And for the promotion of our media, We'd appeal to you once again to go on to CWI Media YouTube channel and subscribe to that. Now, of course, Russia has become quite a substantial power since the collapse of Stalinism, since the disintegration of the Soviet Union, quite a substantial power militarily. 
He has his own particular sphere of influence. You have the Euro-Asia Economic Union, which Cuba, incidentally, has just recently joined again. It's tried to strengthen its position in the Middle East as the US has been pushed back, particularly after the events in Syria. But what is the role that Russia is trying to carve out for itself in this new world geopolitical situation which is emerging? And maybe Niall would touch along those points. And I don't know if you'd like to also comment on some of the points that one of our viewers has raised and asked a question quite clearly, am I Ohang? Without a reliable and trusted policing in place, how will the country be run? And what's the role of the army in this global socialist change? My Hoang also touched on the issue of the need for a socialist demographic model. I'm not sure exactly what they're driving at with that, but maybe Niall could touch upon some of those points in exploring the issue of Putin's aspirations, the regional role that he is trying to play, and what impact that's going to have on the world relations. Well, the dissolution of the USSR, of course, saw the destruction of the planned economy. It saw a collapse in living standards, which Claire's already outlined, this shock and awe period of capitalism during the 1990s. But it also saw a huge demoralization of the Red Army and the strength of the Russian armed forces overall. And Western imperialism at this stage saw this as an opportunity to step in and increase its influence and power. And we saw that with conflicts in the first Gulf War, the Balkans, and then the Iraq War. And over that period of years, NATO member states were increased and increasingly encircled Russia as well. It was only really with the advent of power of Putin and then the economic growth that developed, largely on the basis of high prices of fossil fuels, that the army was able to be redeveloped and modernized to some degree. And then Russian capitalism began to assert itself in its own sphere of influence. We saw that with its involvement in the processes that took place during the so-called Orange Revolution in 2004 in the Ukraine. And we also saw it in a number of conflicts involving Russian forces. So, for example, in Chechnya, over a long period of the late 90s and 2000s, we saw it in the Caucasus and other areas. We saw it with the short war with Georgia in 2008. And then, of course, with the ongoing conflict with Ukraine, particularly in the eastern part of Ukraine, around the Russian-speaking enclaves, which has started in 2014 and is still not resolved. And then stepping up its presence even more on the world stage, we saw Russian forces intervene in the Middle East, in particular in Syria in 2015. And this had a decisive impact in shoring up the Assad regime and allowing that regime to remain in power. And we should remember how dangerous that period was where you had armed forces from Russia, Iran, the US and Turkey, all in the same territory at that stage. And then there was the conflict last year, another short conflict, but still bloody conflict, between Azerbaijan forces and the military from Armenia. And this was over the disputed area of Nagorno-Karabakh. And Russia played a direct role in that, supporting Armenians in that conflict. They come out on the losing side, Azerbaijan, with backing from Turkey and its more modern equipment, was able to grab more land at that stage from their Armenian side. And the tensions and the conflicts in this region are very complex because on the one hand you had Russia and Turkey in conflict in that situation, but they have common cause, if you like, against Western capitalism and Western imperialism at this stage. And of course also over this period of time, during the long years of Putin's rule, he's tried to cultivate support amongst different regimes in Latin America, and Asia and Africa. With China, of course, he's tried to strengthen ties, whilst at the same time, 
Those two are in competition, particularly the Far East area of Russia and those border areas at this stage. And really, to all these tensions and conflicts and so on, at root, what they reflect is the competition between Western imperialism led by the United States and Russia and China for influence over markets, for profits and spheres of influence. And this situation is only going to become more explosive with the Biden administration, which has taken quite a strident approach so far towards Russia and China. Biden has called for the release of Navalny and makes threats of new sanctions against Russia. The EU has become embroiled in this. Last week, the EU's foreign minister had a humiliating visit to Moscow where he was lectured by his counterpart. And at the same time, while he was in Moscow, Russia expelled diplomats from three EU countries in retaliation for what they said was their interference in the domestic affairs of Russia. They were attending protests called by Navalny over the last couple of weeks. There's now demands by a number of EU states, particularly those in Eastern Europe, for new sanctions against the oligarchs around Putin. But then there's even divisions over these issues to some degree inside the EU at the same time. There's a huge row over what's called the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a very important pipeline, which is near completion and will double the amount of natural gas delivered annually from Russia to Germany. It bypasses the Baltic countries and it bypasses also Ukraine, which means a loss of income for those countries. And also it strengthens Europe's reliance on Russia for that fuel over the next period of time. As well, of course, there's not just geostrategic interests here. American imperialism fears that it could lose out in profits because there will be a cut in its shipping imports of liquefied natural gas from US to Europe over the next period of time. The United States has put such pressure on some of the companies involved in implementing this pipe stream that they've actually pulled out of operations. So we have to see what happens over the next period of time over this very explosive issue. But as well as what are called fossil fuel wars, we also see the vaccine wars linked to COVID spilling over into the situation of relations between the West and Russia. After the debacle of the EU Commission's failure to have a rollout programme of vaccines across Europe, Germany and France have said that they will look at buying new vaccines from Russia and China as long as they are proven as safe. And France and Germany do take a somewhat different position in their relations towards Russia for reasons of profit, of strategy and so on, than the United States and some of the other EU countries. So I think just in conclusion on this issue, you know, Russia, of course, we would say is not a major economic power. It is not near anywhere as strong militarily as the United States, and it has all the economic complications that it's going into. Yet it still is a nuclear arms power, and it has a very large army, and it will assert the use of this army as the domestic crisis grows for Putin over the next period of time. And this is all in the context of increasing tensions between the main imperialist powers, particularly between the United States and China, which is the rising power not on the same military level as the United States, although it's developing its military, but of course economically is a very strong power indeed. I think from the point of view of the working class, we would have to say they've no dog in this fight. It's not a question of supporting either of these imperialist powers, either the greater or smaller ones. What we need, what the working class needs, is international solidarity across all borders and to fight for a socialist alternative in every country, including Russia, against these right-wing regimes. And in that process, we can change society in Russia and internationally. And just to answer part of the question, at least asked by the viewer, I think from the point of view of policing and so on, what we want to see is a society 
where the working class runs its own affairs democratically at all levels. And of course, that would take away the need for coercive powers, like you see today with the police and other such forces of the state inside capitalist powers. In a country like Russia, these have got very great powers and are very repressive. And that would melt away in a socialist society where the working class runs its own affairs. People have all their needs met and can live a fulfilled life. And there's no need for one part of the population to coerce another, particularly not a handful of oligarchs coercing the vast majority of people as we see today in Russia. Oh, well, thanks, Niall. That's touched on some important points. And I think, you know, the point to emphasise there, of course, that the armies we have around the world at this stage are there to defend the rich, the oligarchs, and the capitalist system. What we do under a socialist society, you'd have maybe forces there to defend the interests of all the peoples. But to conclude, of course, we've had a very rich discussion on the question of what's begun to take place in Russia in the recent period. But is this really signalling the beginning of the end of Putin? What is needed for the movement to develop further now? Because we've had the protests, but where's it going to go now? And what programme is necessary? And what are the main demands that the movement needs to adopt and focus to take up the next stage of the struggle. So maybe briefly in conclusion, Claire could respond to some of those points enduring this particular discussion to a close. Yeah, I think Putin is not sleeping easy at night either because he's not sure if it's the beginning of the end for him. And I think he's stricken like other ruling layers when revolutions are developing with the dilemma whether to clamp down harder or to give concessions, which is very much against his nature. Clamping down is much more in his line. I mean, we shouldn't forget, it's not only a dictation of people being thrown into prison now just for being on demonstrations, but he killed one of the leaders of the opposition movement in 2013, I think it was, when Boris Nemtsov was murdered right near to the Kremlin. You know, we could see some more bloody attempts to wipe out the opposition. And even some of the opposition to Putin think you should wipe out Navalny. So it's still a bit of a society full of crooks at the top. But I think what we have seen is the beginnings of a revolutionary situation. You've had the elements of the fear has gone amongst a certain layer. Obviously, fear is still there because of the way that the youth and the demonstrators were bashed on the head by the forces of the state. But that in itself can sort of incite revolutionary thoughts in the heads of the youth, even middle class youth, as they did in 1968 with that massive revolutionary wave then that brought the workers into the struggle and could have led to a successful revolution there. But we have seen elements of revolution. We've seen middle class layers involved in this. We've seen an uncertainty even on the part of Putin, about whether to make concessions or clamp down. He held a referendum. It was only a year ago that he announced he was going to have a referendum, and it was to change the constitution, but also to allow him to stay in power until at least 2036. Now, he managed to get a majority in that referendum in the summer, I think, of last year. By hook and by crook, and mostly by crook, by forcing civil servants, you know, employees of the state to go and vote for him, we would have had the attitude of vote no. Some people said boycott. I think that's come up in earlier discussion, boycott. But we would say vote no to this change that allows him to stay in place for life. It was passed, but it's no guarantee that he's going to stay there. But he is worried about if he doesn't stay there, obviously, the actions that can be taken against him because this vast wealth that he has has not been achieved by fair means. 
And that's one of the things that Navalny is on about. But we're not just in favor of total openness and democratic elections, which is what Navalny is talking about. The right for any party to put forward, or any party to organize, new parties to organize, put forward candidates without huge amounts of money having to be paid to stand in the elections. We wouldn't do what Navalny has done in elections and say, well, you can vote for a far right, even a fascist, as long as that's going to defeat the Putin candidates. We couldn't say that. We have to have a clear program to put forward that will attract youth and workers and unite them in an effort to set up a genuine workers' party. And I just finish. There's one other thing that often, when a situation like this develops, the CWI talks about the need for a democratically elected constituent assembly. And we do have to think about how people's views can be represented in deciding what kind of government they want. But Constituent Assembly has a bit of a bad press in Russia, even amongst lefts, because it was dismissed, you know, broken up by the Bolsheviks when they'd taken power, because it didn't represent the views of the people at that particular time. And this confusion about what a Constituent Assembly would be, use other words to avoid that particular problem, if people have been looking at their history. And I think a comrade of ours in Germany, who wrote an article after the first big demonstration in Russia, he really put together at the end of his article the main points of a program that we would put forward, a socialist program for Russia, which would include stop police and judicial arbitrariness, freedom of all the political prisoners, freedom of the press, the speech, assembly and organization, the right to organize democratic trade unions in all workplaces, including in the armed forces and the police. Abolition of surveillance, espionage and the FSP, you know, the Secret Service, what used to be the KGB. Away with the parasitic clique that rules today in capitalist Russia. Expropriate the large monopolies in industry. It's in energy and it's in the extraction industries of oil and gas and minerals, where the oligarchs get their main wealth from and obviously take over the banks as well, because they've been a source of massive income for the oligarchs. They robbed off the state in that process that I mentioned before. The programme is very comprehensive, you know, nationalisation of the industry under democratic workers' control and management for a socialist democracy in which the majority of people decide on politics and the economy. And I think that just about sums it up. Okay, well, thanks. That draws it nicely to a conclusion. I'd like to thank all our viewers who've joined us today for this important discussion. We'll be back in two weeks with further analysis of the situation developing internationally and the struggle for socialism internationally. would appeal to all of our viewers. If you're not a member of the CWI, if you like further analysis, go to our webpage at socialistworld.net. Don't just be passive, support us financially and get involved in the struggle to build a socialist alternative. And you can put yourself in contact with us at our webpage at socialistworld.net. So thanks for watching. Stay safe and let's continue the struggle to build a global socialist alternative in the next period. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers' in Today we heard from Claire Doyle and Niall Mulholland speaking to Tony Sonwar and I'm James Ivans. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. You can find further reading in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. 
do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? Now is the time. Apply to join at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely on funding from the working class, which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to the capitalists. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Till next time, solidarity.